Welcome to the Sermon Podcast of Trinity Church in Carryville, Tennessee, right outside of Memphis. For more information about our church, please visit our website, trinity901.com. So we're going to go back in time to 1553 in England. And Mary I has assumed the throne as the Queen of England. She is the eldest daughter of Henry VIII, and she is bound and determined to reverse the Reformation that has taken place in England. She wants to do away with the reformational changes that have occurred in her nation. And so she convinces Parliament to pass a law that if anyone teaches heresy, that they will be severely punished, even killed. And so one of the first individuals to suffer under the tyranny of Queen Mary, often referred to as Bloody Mary, is a pastor, a Protestant minister by the name of Dr. Rowan Taylor, a man of God, a man who heartily believed in the doctrines and truths that came forth as a result of the Protestant Reformation. So he is taken to jail for his teachings. He is taken to jail for what he believes. And one of the things that you learn about him as you study his life is that in jail, in prison, he led many other prisoners to faith in Jesus Christ. He was not going to let his circumstances detour him. Like the Apostle Paul, he is sharing his faith. But then in February of 1555, he is tried and he is found guilty of heretical teaching. He is excommunicated from the church. He is defrocked and he is to be burned at the stake. And so we have his words that he spoke to his wife, it was written down, before he is killed, before he is martyred. And I want you to listen closely at what he says. This is significant, it's profound, it's impactful. Dr. Rowan Taylor, on the eve of his death, being burned at the stake, he says, I say to my wife and to my children, the Lord gave you to me and the Lord has taken me from you and you from me. Blessed be the name of the Lord. I have ever found him more faithful and favorable than any husband or father. Trust in him by means of our dear Savior's merits. Believe, love, fear, and obey him. Pray to him, for he has promised to help. Count me not dead, for I shall eternally live and never die. I go before you and you shall follow after me to our eternal home. Unbelievable. Unbelievable truths that he is speaking amidst great trials. In his words, you do not see fear, you don't see bitterness, you don't see anger, because Rowan Taylor knows that the flames that will be at his feet cannot destroy his hope in a resurrected king. It's not going to happen. 
So this morning we're going to briefly look at Thessalonians and here in this text we're going to see Paul reminding us that the resurrection of King Jesus from the dead means real lasting hope for God's people. Let's pray. Lord God, take your word and use it this morning for your purposes to strengthen your people who have come to this place, many who are hurting, many who are facing challenges, many who have doubts. Apply your word to their hearts and renew them. Strengthen them. Father, forgive the one who speaks, for my sins are great. Set me aside as you speak words of truth and grace this morning. Amen. So there's three things we're going to look at today as we work our way through Paul's message. Hope, promise, and encouragement. Hope, promise, and encouragement. So if we go back to verse, verses 13 through 14, Paul is speaking to the church in Thessalonica and he is reminding them of what it means to believe that Jesus died and rose again. Now, let me give you a, a little background of what is taking place in this city. Paul planted a church there and he had to leave abruptly. And he gets word later on that the people in Thessalonica are struggling with a doctrinal issue. Now, scholars believe, and I think they're right, that this is the first letter that Paul wrote. And this was probably written in A.D. 50. So not too far removed from the physical resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Here's what they're concerned about in Thessalonica. We were expecting Jesus to return in our lifetime. And believers have died. And so what happens? Where do they go? What's going on? What's the situation? Now, this might seem for those in a church culture 2,000 years later as something that's obvious. But you have to remember that Thessalonica was mainly Gentile people who knew nothing of the teachings of the Old Testament. They knew very little about the beliefs of ancient Israel. They've come to faith in Jesus Christ, this Jewish carpenter turned rabbi, and they know very little. And so it's a genuine question. And we don't know if Paul is thinking to himself as he writes them, these young Christians, how did they forget that? I told them about this. Or perhaps Paul is writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and he's thinking, oh goodness, I didn't tell them what would happen. And so they need to know. Irregardless, the letter is sent. And Paul is telling them that if you die before the return of the Lord Jesus, that your glorified souls go to heaven and that you enter into the presence of the One who has given His life so that we may live forever. And Paul is saying, drill down into that. That is your hope. Trust in my words. Trust in what I am saying to you. Have 
hope in this, that Jesus died and He was raised from the dead. What would a good definition of hope be in light of this passage? I think it is a blissful, peaceful, and expectant soul that is anchored firmly in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Let me say that again. And using the word hope, Paul is saying a blissful, peaceful, and expectant soul that is anchored in the resurrection. That's where our hope comes from. That's where it emanates. It's important for us to look to that empty tomb because it brings a meaning that the world cannot possibly understand. Thomas Brooks was a Puritan who wrote many wonderful and in-depth works regarding the Gospels. And I want to share with you what he says about this hope because it's, it's very profound. A Christian will part with anything rather than his hope. He knows that hope will keep the heart both from aching and breaking, from fainting and sinking. He knows that hope is a beam of God, a spark of glory, and that nothing shall extinguish it till the soul be filled with glory. As believers in Jesus Christ, as followers of the resurrected Lord, we have a hope, a real, genuine, lasting hope that belongs to us. It is a gift that comes through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. It leads us, it guides us. We rely on that hope. We lean in to that hope. When the strong winds of affliction blow, we run to the fortress that is the hope of Christ. When the floodwaters of doubt surround us, we take to the high ground that is the hope of the resurrection. When the darkness of death grips us, we look to the light that is the hope of the empty tomb. We believe that Jesus conquered sin and death, rose from the dead in victory, and ascended to the right hand of God. It is a comforting and wonderful thing that as God's people, we can profess these truths. That we can say week in and week out as we gather for the Lord's Day that Jesus is alive and that the tomb is empty. And no matter what we may face and no matter what we may feel, no matter what may come our way, no matter what may happen, we look to the hope that we have in Him. Is that significant? Is that important? It's a gift from the Holy Spirit to us. This hope rooted and anchored in the cross. Secondly, not only do we have the hope of the resurrection, we have the promise of the resurrection. Now, look in your Bibles at verse 15 through 17. This is, we're going to read through this carefully because I believe there's a lot of misunderstanding in our culture regarding the end of time, the end of days. And I think this is a very clear passage about what is going to happen. Verse 15. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. So let's stop for just a second there. We're talking about the intermediate state. As we have worked our way through the Gospel of Mark, I have mentioned to you 
the inauguration of Jesus as King as the one and only true Israelite who has come to bring about the kingdom of God. He is planting that seed and the kingdom is growing. But we know that the kingdom has not come in all its fullness because Jesus ascends to heaven and He is sitting at the right hand of the Father, ruling in power and with all authority. And so Jesus is there, we are here, and the world in which we live is a very difficult and it's a very challenging place. We don't have to look any further than what's going on in the Ukraine. That's all we have to look at to see the fallen nature of mankind and to see that the kingdom has not come in all its fullness because Jesus says that when it does, there will be no more sickness, there will be no more war, there will be no more sin, there will no, there will no longer be shame and guilt and problems and struggles, that it will all be done away with. All things will be renewed and restored and recreated. And so when we look around, when we take a short glimpse... That has not transpired. So we live, as theologians call it, in the already not yet, or the intermediate state. So we have the beginning of the kingdom of God, the inauguration of the kingdom of God in the Gospels. We live in the intermediate state, the already not yet, and we are waiting for the consummation of the kingdom. Here it is in all its fullness. And so when we die in the intermediate state, as Paul is saying to his audience in Thessalonica, our glorified souls go to heaven. Our bodies experience decay because of the fall of humankind, because of the fall of nature. Now let's pick up with 16. For the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with the cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Let's stop. And so here we see the coming of Jesus in victory and in power as the conquering King. He is coming for His people. He is coming to bring an end to this intermediate state, and He's bringing... His kingdom to the forefront in its final consummation. But who does He come for first? What Paul is telling Thessalonica is that your friends, your parents, your loved ones, your neighbors, your church members that who have died and you are curious, you are upset, you don't know what is going to happen. Here it is. I'm telling you that Jesus comes for them first. And what do you see? Well, the kingdom has now come. The kingdom is being unveiled. And because Jesus has conquered death, because Jesus, by the power of His Word, can restore all things, that He looks at the the canvas of death that is before Him, And he says no. And he brings about resurrection and that belongs first to those who have died. And so their glorified souls in heaven are being reunited with their bodies in glorification. And they are now entering into the perfection and the beauty of the kingdom of God. 
You will no longer experience death. You will no longer experience sickness. You will no longer experience travails because Jesus is your older brother and He has come and He is reordering all things. He is the first fruits of the resurrection. Now 17 then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. So what Paul is saying is that those who have died will be resurrected, their glorified bodies united with their glorified souls in the presence of Jesus, and then us. Those who have not died And what is taking place, the imagery of verse 17, excuse me, verse 16, is that those who are on earth and those who are in heaven are coming together as one in Christ for a new creation. Something different. That here we are on earth and here comes God and the angels, the armies of heaven led by the archangels, here comes the glorified souls of those who belong to Jesus. And it's a collision, if you will, that brings transformation. One plus one equals two. Something new. And it is the new creation that we read about throughout the New Testament. What is new creation? It is God's adopted family in Christ living in His presence, perfectly loved, in complete harmony forever. Hear that again. What is new creation? It's God's adopted family in Christ living in His presence, perfectly loved, in complete harmony forever. God is renewing and restoring and recreating all things to His glory. And we will dwell on earth. Heaven is a mere bus stop. It is a temporary location until God the Father can bring about the consummation of His kingdom. And we will dwell on earth. And we will live earthly lives. And we will do earthly things. And it will be beautiful And He will receive praise and honor through the work and through the lives that we live in this recreated earth free from all the challenges and all the struggles and all the problems and all the issues that we face right now. The best day that you will ever have in your life on this earth is a poor reflection of what you will experience for eternity in this new heavens and the new earth as God's people belonging to His family. That is what awaits us. And so, the promise of the consummation of the kingdom, the coming of Jesus in victory, is that we will be made new. And that things will be made right. And that it's going to be more beautiful and more incredible than we can possibly imagine. Paul got a glimpse of it. Just a glimpse of heaven. And he said, to die is gain. 
To die is gain. And so until Jesus comes again, death is the door that's unlocked for us to see the beauty of our older brother and the peace of the kingdom that is coming. And that's why we wade into the waters of death different than the world because we have the promises of the coming of Christ and we have resurrection hope. It belongs to us in Jesus. And then third is encouragement. The last verse, 18. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Dwell on that for a second. Paul finishes his letter. He's, excuse me, he's finishing this section on the return of Christ. And he says to the church in Thessalonica, encourage one another. What are they to encourage one another with? And it's resurrection hope, and it's the promise of the second coming. That as believers in Christ, we are to support and help and love one another. So Paul understands their situation in the intermediate state. Paul gets it. He knows. He's writing to them and he's saying, look, I know that life is hard. I have been beaten. I have been put in prison. I have been made fun of. I have been accused of heresy. I have been attacked. I know that you live a difficult life. I know that you have problems. I know that there are struggles within your own family. I know in your occupation that there are challenges. I know that you have sin issues that you want to put to death. It's hard living in a fallen world. I get it. I understand. That's what Paul is saying to them. So encourage one another. This life is not easy. It's not going to be perfect until we see Jesus face to face. This life is not going to make sense until God restores all things. Until the new heavens and the new earth arrive. And so what you need to do in the meantime is encourage one another with the gospel. So Trinity, that means as we do life together as a church, as broken, fallen, sinful people, we encourage one another. We step into each other's lives with the good news of Jesus Christ, the hope of the resurrection, and we lift each other up. We sharpen each other. We bring each other to the cross. Because there we find joy and we find peace. We do this for each other because we are a family. Because Jesus is our older brother. And He did all of this for us. And He does it perfectly. We will attempt to do it but imperfectly, that we, we encourage one another. That you go forth from this place to fellow believers, people that you know at work, in your family, in your neighborhood, 
people that have been a special part of your life and you encourage them for the sake of Jesus. When they are hurting, when they are confused, when they have doubts, when they have fears, when they have significant problems, you are there for them and you encourage them and you remind them, hey, the tomb is completely empty. There is nothing in that tomb. And then we go to those in our life who don't know King Jesus. We go to them and we encourage them with resurrection hope. We go to them in their pain and we say He brings meaning. We go to them in their sin and we say I've been forgiven, you can be forgiven. We go to them amidst their efforts to try to save themselves by being good, by being likable, by being honest, by being moral. Which is a joke according to the law of God and His Word. Because only Christ can do that. We go to them and we say, I have failed over and over and over again, but Jesus did not let me encourage you to cast your life, your soul into His hands. We go to people who don't know the mercy and the grace and the love of Jesus and we encourage them because we want them to have what we have. Which is freedom and hope, and love, and acceptance, and a Father who is right and just and holy, and a Son who was willing to give His life for me, and the Spirit which comes and gives me eyes to see and ears to hear and changes my soul because it is deceitful. The Spirit that comes and gives me a new heart that is making me to look more and more like Jesus. The gospel is a word of encouragement and we need to hear it and we need to share it. And this is all true. This is all the reality. Because a long time ago, a stone was rolled away from a grave and a Jewish carpenter walked out and he stepped on the head of a serpent. And he crushed death. And he said, victory is mine. And because we belong to Him, victory is ours. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we thank You for the word of encouragement that You give us in the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Father, this is hope and promise and encouragement that we need to live life Father, thank You for doing this for us. Thank You for the love that You have placed upon us. Thank You for accepting us when we were rebellious and sinful and broken. God, You are good and You are worthy of all praise. We lift our voices to You today. And it's in His name we pray. Amen.